Welcome back to the Renaissance and Our Times podcast. Hope you're having a great day. My name is Richard Emerson. I will be your host today. And in this episode, we're going to talk about, we're going to have a book review. So this is going to be a recent book. It's from July 22nd this year. And the title is Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity, with the subtitle, The Search for a Meaningful Life, by Christopher Kaiser and Matthew Petrusek. So this is a bit of a follow-up from the previous episode when we talked about the conversation between Jordan Peterson and Dr. James Orr at the Cambridge University, the Faculty of Divinity. So in part because one of the arguments that we try to articulate is to see how Jordan Peterson is um, kind of he's shaping and there's an emerging kind of theology in his work and in his talks and conversations over the last five years. And they are in some ways more and more aligned with uh, the classical theology of Catholicism, of orthodoxy, and also some of the Hebrew theology. So this, this book we're going to talk about today is the first kind of academic scholarly analysis of Jordan Peterson's theology by two Catholic scholars. They're also professors at the Loyola Marymount University in California. And also a thank you to uh, Tommaso Todesca. Uh, he's an, uh, an emerging Dante expert in, in California as well. He's making a, a series, a great series, Canto per Canto, going through the whole Divine Comedy, who, who uh, gave us the tip about this book. And uh, when, since we mentioned um, Dante, also kind of a little bit of a fun discovery this week. We had a bit of a very brief email uh, correspondence with Dr. James Orr, and then it turns out that he also loves Dante, which is really encouraging and promising for maybe some new ideas and, and um, more connections between the, the theology of Dante, the world of the Divine Comedy, and things we are seeing uh, in the current times and the current conversations as well. So we're going to look now at the book. So the overall purpose, the aim for the book is to, to see how Jordan Peterson fits into the wider framework of Catholic theology and tradition over the last thousand years and in some ways also the last 2000 years. So we're going to go through uh, several examples in the book with some uh, <laughs> slight sidetracking here and there, and then we're going to uh, finish off with a little overall assessment of the book and how it works and uh, what it achieves and what could be done for future books as well. So we're just going to jump now into the opening of the book from the first chapter. So this part is written by Christopher Kaysor, and then the first chapter is called How Peterson Reads the Bible. And there's a very nice thing here that with the opening page that a main idea here is the virtue of humility. So he talks about now how the, the YouTube series, the psychological significance of the biblical series, is this enormous success. The first video has almost 9 million views, just the first video now. And then he points to, like Kaser does, points to how the approach from Pearson is uh, having a certain humility. So the quote there is uh, from Peterson, quote, I'm approaching this whole scenario, the biblical stories, as if they are a mystery, fundamentally because they are. There's a lot we don't understand about them. We don't understand how they came about. We don't really understand how they were put together. We don't understand why they had such an unbelievable impact on civilization. And then he wraps up this paragraph. 
that no matter who, how educated you are, you're not educated enough to discuss the psychological significance of the biblical stories. But I'm going to do my best, end quote. So this is a, a promising start on both uh, this book and also is a great start for the, the video series in itself. And it points straight back to this overall key virtue to understand the spiritual, to understand the heavens or the theology is the intellectual humility. We're going to go more back to this also when, like this is the overall topic for uh, for the purgatory in Dante, for example, but also everywhere in in the tradition. Like the, the opposite, the intellectual pride or the intellectual superbia is something that completely blocks the understanding. The idea is then that you get nowhere and you will you will go, if not backwards, you will go into wrong, your aim will not be correct. So having a bit of acknowledgement that there are things you don't know is essential. Uh, you could call it a requirement, but you could also call it the key that opens up things. So that's a, a great start with uh, with this first chapter. And then just jumping right into some like one of the main themes there, like how does uh, Peterson align up with the church founders, for example? So the book here makes the argument that figures like Augustine, Gregory the Great, Hugh of Saint Victor, and Thomas Aquinas, they are not a direct influence on Peterson. I say, quote: I see no evidence that Peterson is explicitly drawing of any of these figures. End quote. Uh, but then he also says that, quote, but Peterson reflects the view of Aquinas, who argued that scripture has an inexhaustible depth of meaning. He re-articulates the view of Augustine, who recommended using all available knowledge, secular or sacred, to illuminate the biblical stories. And he echoes the view of Hugh of St. Victor in reading Genesis in light of St. John's Gospel. Uh, Peterson, as it were, reinvents the interpretive wheel that these earlier thinkers had crafted before him, end quote. So this sums up much of this whole book that if you know the church founders, if you know the tradition, you see more and more how Peterson's thinking is aligning with these timeless, uh, as, as they saw it, the, the timeless uh, spiritual insights and knowledge. This points to another idea that was different in the ancient times and also the medieval times, that that knowledge, spiritual truth, is something that is eternal and in this, in this just the fabric, the structure of ultimate reality. <laughs> and then what we can do is to discover this and then align our thinking, our free will, and our approach to the world and apprehension of the world according to these realities. Uh, so it's a bit like they saw it in some ways like mathematics, like you you, dis you don't invent mathematics, you discover the timeless mathematics. They are kind of there. And that's how they saw spiritual knowledge, spiritual truths and insights. And then the aim was to discover this for yourself and then be a part of this timeless tradition. Instead of thinking that a person now can just scrap everything and start fresh and then discover something new. That, that thinking would be like uh, kind of strange for medieval and ancient people because they would make the argument that, well, eventually, like you don't have to go back to the Stone Age to start thinking and eventually you will end up with the same insights. Like if you scrap all mathematics, you will discover the same mathematics all over. So 
just like a convoluted way of saying here that this is how you might see Peterson moving towards these established uh, strains of thoughts in the tradition. Okay, so that's a bit of the overall. And then it's also interesting that he quotes here, uh, where he mentions that, that Peterson is talking about origin of Alexandria, who's a very important figure, one of the first theologians um, of all time. And then, uh, so the quote from Peterson is that many of the early church fathers, origin in particular, stated very clearly that these ancient stories were to be taken as wise metaphors and not to be taken literally. The idea that the people who established Christianity were all the sort of people who were biblical literalists is just absolutely historically wrong. Some of them were, and some of them still are. That's not the point. The point is that many of them weren't. End quote. This was again from Peterson. And then he, the book slightly touches on, on the idea of the four different ways of interpreting biblical stories with the literal, allegorical, moral, and anagogical. It's interesting because these four different ways of looking at the stories are very, almost kind of modern, but they are very established. So this is uh, like an ancient way to looking at it, and it's also in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which says, According to the ancient tradition, one can distinguish between two senses of Scripture, the literal and the spiritual. The latter, meaning the spiritual, being subdivided into the allegorical, moral, and anagogical senses. The profound concordance of the four senses guarantees all its richness to the living reading of Scripture in the Church. So we're going to jump here to how Dante describes this to his patron, Cangrande della Scala in Verona. He, Dante is um, dedicating the whole Paradiso to his patron. And there's also a letter, Epistle 13, where he describes and explains much of his letter. So then paragraph 7 in this. So this is from Dante to his patron. For me to be able to present what I'm going to say, you must know that the sense of the work is not simple. Rather, it may be called polysemantic, that is, of many senses. The first sense is that which comes from the letter. The second is that of that which is signified by the letter. And the first is called literal, the second allegorical or moral or anagogical. So we're going to have example. Anagogical means kind of moving towards the divine or also in some sense getting a better understanding of the transcendent, of the mystery, uh, of theology. And then it continues, Dante continues here, which method of treatment that it may be clearer can be considered through these words. So here's an example from the biblical stories, from the Psalms. When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a barbarous people, Judea was made his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. If we look at it from the letter alone, it means to us, so here comes the literal part, the exit of the children of Israel from Egypt at the time of Moses. If from allegory, kind of symbolic, it means for us our redemption done by Christ. If from the moral sense, of what we can learn about right and wrong, for example, it means to us the conversion of the soul from the struggle and misery of sin to the status of grace. If from the anagogical, 
it means the leave taking of the blessed soul from the slavery of this corruption to the freedom of eternal glory. So again, like the anagogical, moving towards the divine or understanding of the divine and participating in the divine. So uh, also one, like the word sin, it's, it's helpful to just be like, keeping in mind that the sin means to miss the mark. It's, it, the Greek word has, comes from archery and kind of n- making a mistake with bad consequences. Uh, that's kind of the root of the meaning of it. Okay, so those are the four senses. They are uh, very helpful when reading old, like ancient literature in general, but also in just being able to think in sort of a modern way or to like a, a more, uh, let's say, like you have more perspectives and you can see several layers at once and how they also put together gives even more meaning. So, uh, and also just one last word on the, on the allegorical. So allegory comes from Greek alien, which in Latin means other or different. So you have the literal and then you have all the other senses. And anagog is leading, anagogical. So that's a little bit like how, this is a very, this was very established for so many centuries as a way of approaching symbolic stories. And then we're going to have one part here about reason. So this is chapter 8. And this is uh, the other scholar. So chapter 8, the problem of pride and its antidote. And then a reflection on reason from Peterson. Reason falls in love with itself and worse. It falls in love with its own productions. It elevates them and worships them as absolutes. It is the greatest temptation of the rational faculty to glorify its own capacity and its own productions and to claim that in the face of its theories, nothing transcendent or outside its domain need exist. This is in many ways, just one other aside here, exactly what uh, recent brain research, brain science, biology of the last couple of decades have shown with how the d- contrast between the, the right and the left hemisphere. The left hemisphere tends to do exactly <laughs> what is described here and this is also one of the main main ideas in the work of Ian McGilchrist who wrote the book The Master and His Emissary which is uh, very very helpful to understand how to navigate your own thinking and to and to be able to see this perspective on how how um, there is sometimes a bit of a tug of tug of war between the hemispheres like which territory you will be thinking from, and then also the perils of the left hemisphere, which is then the the reason becomes kind of totalitarian and then dismissing everything else and also reacting with aggression if any of the axioms are questioned. So this is a, this is a very helpful uh, little tool or technique to to understand sometimes what could happen in a conversation or in a debate when this... Uh, overly left hemisphere way of thinking is being questioned at the axioms because then you can see people do respond sometimes unproportionately uh, strongly uh, like and combative against it so that is the the part with the the reason and then peterson suggests two antidotes for this one is to be precise in your speech and the other one is uh, to assume humility, or as he says, the person you're listening to might know something you don't. 
and then to be precise in your speech is about uh, being closer to reality instead of of falling into a preconceived rational model in your head but trying to to really get to how things really are and humility is also we just have one quote from from uh, the purgatory with dante because the reed is the most kind of the biggest symbol of humility uh, because also in part for many reasons but in part because it kind of it, it bends it has this flexibility and then when they meet Cato in the opening chapter, he says to Virgil, go with this man, see that you gird his waist with a smooth reed. So Cato is the guardian of the mountain. He's also then, again, like the portal, like the, the helper to understand how to be able to climb this mountain of understanding, like ethical understanding of virtue in, in this case. Uh, and then that humility is... is uh, a requirement that you just have it has to be there so uh, this is then further showed in the paradiso when dante starts paradiso because then he's been through one whole book one realm learning about humility and all all the rewards that come from it so when he starts the third book he's fully he has fully learned this lesson that to ascend even further humility is the key so then he starts talking about that he is uh, thus far I have addressed my prayers to one peak of Parnassus, like the mountain with two peaks with the Muses on one and Apollo on the other. Now I need them both to move into this heavenly arena. Okay, and then we have a few more points. We're going to look now at um, when he talks about uh, science and the limitations of science. This is slightly shifting gears here, but this is about... Uh, apprehending or, and approaching and understanding things from a scientific or other kinds of perspective. So he talks about here like understanding yourself. So like get your it's a quote from Peterson: "Get your story straight. Past, present, future—they all matter. You need to map your path. You need to know where you were so that you do not repeat the mistakes of the past. You need to know where you are, or you will not be able to draw a line from your starting point to your destination. You need to know where you are going." or you will drown in uncertainty, unpredictability, and chaos, and starve for hope and inspiration. For better or worse, you are on a journey. So this is part of the argument that this is uh, necessary to understand yourself and where you are going and life and people and also, to some sense, then the world. And it's also interesting, this other way of looking at it, like which is that our own individual stories are enmeshed with and cannot be properly understood apart from the stories of those in our lives. Uh, and also then a quote from Alistair McIntyre, I am part of their story as they are part of mine. The narrative of any life is part of an interlocking set of narratives. This is just like a very interesting thought. It doesn't connect directly to Peterson and his theology, but it's a part of this larger argument of reason, science, faith, theology, and how this could be uh, unified in some sense. And just pointing out the limitations of the reason. And then to the, the last points uh, from the epilogue. They are comparing Peterson with Job. The story of Job in the old biblical stories. Uh, for example then, especially this uh, so forceful quote here. That, so then what they're pointing to is that Peterson is still saying that he's acting as if God exists, but then they say there's a huge difference between that and, for example, then formulated as believing in God and acting accordingly. Uh, 
there's a vast difference uh, like that between reading a great love story and falling in love for yourself. And then a, ni a nice illuminating quote is from the, the last chapter of Job's book where he said, I had heard of you by hearing of the air, but now my eyes see you. This is the difference between hearing something and then seeing it like just a, it has a different nature and also a different impact, like strength to it. So that is the end. There's also another aside, but like Job's book is fantastic when it comes to some of the quotes there when it comes to humilities like just to tie that into this so in chapter 38 this is when job has this questioning of the divine of that which is beyond him and then the 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 reply that comes is where was thou when i laid the foundations of the earth declare if you have understanding who has laid the measures thereof, if you know? Or who has stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundation thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? This is just another way of reminding oneself of intellectual humility when approaching the, the bigger topics of the world, of existence, of the cosmos, uh, that we still there's still so many things we do not know and therefore, even the rational approach would be to keeping in mind that there are things we still don't know. And then implicit in this argument is that if you then cut out everything we don't know and say it's irrelevant and you just stay within what we do know in the rational framework, then you have in some ways limited yourself and also closed the door to more understanding. And it's also... a as we pointed to earlier, it's a, it's a risky strategy for, for apprehending and understanding the world in itself. Okay, so with that, now we have the final part, which is the overall thoughts of the book. Again, the book is called Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity, The Search for a Meaningful Life. So as the first book that is like a scholarly academic analysis, the idea is really, really good. Uh, but it could have been a little bit more clear. It could also be a better guide to the church founders themselves, and it could be a little bit better in connecting kind of where is Jordan Peterson in this, and if you are interested in Jordan Peterson, where could you go next? And then, so the execution of the book will get three out of four, sorry, three out of five stars. It has a little bit of a feeling that it's not fully finished. It could also create a better picture of Peterson's evolving theology. So like the idea is kind of five stars. Execution is unfortunately three stars in terms of that it becomes uh, a little bit uh, unclear in its focus as well. If it's talking to people who watch the Peterson series, people are just curious and interested in these topics or for academics or for like more specifically Catholic academics. So it's, it's a bit unclear when you're reading. Uh, but all the same, overall for the book, it gets four out of five stars. And we will say that so it's high, some of the chapters are highly recommended to read as food for thought. So overall, if you're interested in this, absolutely, you should read through it. It's also an idea here, like a next book or a better book could do this job a little bit more fully. Uh, also, the title is a little bit reflecting a sort of not clear focus. Uh, so it could have been something more like 
If you like Jordan Peterson, if you like the biblical stories, here's what the Catholic tradition can offer you. And here is how Peterson is actually talking like Aquinas, Augustine, or um, or also Origen, but making it then still on the rational for people who are are kind of approaching this for the first time. But but making it like this this is this can be a helpful step further. So that's just one idea to put out there. Um, so, but then just as an extra kind of category, as food for thought and conversation, we will give it five out of five stars. It's a starting point for great, great conversations. So that's all we had for this episode, this little book review. And uh, also thank you to Christopher Kayser and Matthew Petrusek for doing this work. It's very important. It's a, it is an opener, a door opening. Door opener is also kind of a bridge into these topics. And um, with that, we're just going to wrap it up here. So hope some of this was interesting, some food for thought, uh, some new information or ideas maybe. And uh, as always, thank you so much for listening and see you again in another episode.